Well, g'day everyone and welcome back. This is a real treat. We've got back-to-back Life in the Peloton episodes. Lionel, I'm sorry, mate. You're back on again to intro this episode. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I've had a little holiday, actually, a few days away. And uh, I've already listened to this episode. I've listened to your conversation, Mitch. I've really enjoyed this one. Uh, Who are the listeners going to be tuning in to hear you in conversation with this week? I'm speaking with Ashley Moorman Passio, and she is an amazing person. I love talking to her. I went for a ride with her a couple of weeks ago, and we were just talking on and on and on. I'm a, I'm a big talker, but she's a great talker too. So her and I were chewing each other's ears off, and I thought, I've got to get her on the podcast. She is amazing. She's a, from South Africa. She's a climber. She's got other interests as well she's got a degree in chemical engineering she owns her own sort of hotel business called rocker corba cycling she's got the strava up rocker corba a very famous climb just outside of Girona. so much interesting stuff to talk about she's the e-sport world champion you know what can't she do she's great great personality great to talk to it's a really really good podcast and i just love sitting down chewing the fat with her we sort of chewed up all her time in the afternoon she's so busy she's heading off to Norway and she made time for me um, just a few days ago just to record this episode well I don't want to spoil it for people by giving away too much of what she says towards the end of the podcast but the the kind of the last third is a real deep dive into the Olympic road race the women's Olympic road race which was won by a real outsider a real surprise Anna Kiesenhofer of Austria pulled a fast one on the the super powerful Dutch team and the rest of the peloton and her insight into the race from the perspective of being in that peloton is absolutely fascinating I'm sure anyone who watched that women's road race was just completely thrown by um, how it just didn't go to form and she's got some really interesting explanations as to why that race uh, really upset the apple cart it just did not go the way you would expect a a major one day race to go male or female riders it was uh uh, well it was an absolute shocker um for anyone watching and expecting the dutch to dominate they had the numbers but tactically it just didn't go that way at all that's exactly why i wanted to talk to her not only just about that race but about the olympics i don't know if you're having it i've got with withdrawal symptoms i loved watching the olympics every day i'd get up and just be like tuning into sport and i thought let's squeeze another episode on before the the welter comes we're going to have a break with life and the pearls on we you and i spoke i thought i want to chat to ashley about the olympics why it's fresh in everyone's minds she's been to three olympic games already and this one in particular was very very interesting I'm not going to give too much more away. Let's just get this episode flowing. So guys, sit back, enjoy. It's a bit of a long one, but it's a really good one. I hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm sitting out here at Rocker Corba Cycling and I'm talking to Ashley Moorman Passio. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Mitch. Great to be on your show. Now, I've got to introduce you. I've uh, done some little bit of research. So in case anyone out there who doesn't know, she's three times Olympian, Commonwealth Games gold medalist, podium finisher of the Giro Rosa, multiple South uh, South African, not South Australian. (laughs) I'm sure she would be South Australian if she was Aussie. Multiple South African champion. And I mean like... I counted seven times. Is that right? Or six? Yeah, seven times. Seven times. That's right. 
But this is a nice curveball. Degree in chemical engineering, hails from Pretoria, South Africa. First ever UCI Esports World Champion and currently racing for the UCI Women's World Team, SD Works. Okay, I guess more importantly, co-owner with husband Carl Passio of the Rocacorba Cycling Institute. What, what is, is that it? <laughs> Rocacorba Cycling. Is that how you finish it? Yeah, I mean, well, Rocacorba Cycling is kind of, well, I, I suppose, you know, it's a passion project, but it's more than that, really. I mean, it's it's our future. So mm. it's kind of um, building up the the next um, venture, really, after my pro career. And it's kind of started maybe a little bit earlier than, than what I expected. Um, but yeah, it adds a, a really cool dynamic, you know, to my everyday life. Um, sometimes I have to be a little bit careful, you know, with my time, making sure that, that I don't get too um, too busy here at Rocacorba Cycling. But um, yeah, I really enjoy having the balance of, you know, being a pro cyclist, but also sort of working on business um, on the sideline as well. As you can see, we're going to have fun talking through this place. It's because it's if only you guys could see this, we are sitting in this amazing room here and it's just like, how can we describe this? It's a beautiful stone sort of downstairs. Would you call this, what would you call this? What was this old room that we're sitting in here? Well, we're actually like sitting in sort of a, a barn space that would have been used for um, the animals, like maybe storing I don't know, sheep overnight or, or cows probably in the wintertime. So, you know, uh, Rocacorba Cycling is based at a historical um, Catalan Masia. So it was pretty much the most uh, predominant farm in the Banyoles area, mm-hmm. you know, um, many years ago. And over time, you know, the, the, the family sold off parts of the land and finally let go of this amazing building, uh, which we were very lucky to um, to be the first um, non-Campulia owners. So mm. the historical name of, of the property is, is Campulia. Campulia, so House of Campulia, um, and yeah, we were lucky enough to to stumble upon it and and to purchase it, and um, yeah, transforming it into yeah into a cycling hotel as such. You know, obviously cycling is our first love, so um, that's what what we're most passionate about. But it's also a wonderful place for people just to come and stay and spend holiday times, bring the family out, rent a villa. We have a pool, mm. um, so yeah, this. This room that we're sitting in um, used to be the, the overnight accommodation for, for the animals. But um, yeah, we've tried to just keep its authenticity, but change its functionality, you know. So now it's our cycling den, really. I think you're under painting the picture here because it, it, in my mind, when, as you were saying, that, I was like, yeah, well, everyone's listening out there. They're sitting in the, the old barn, sitting on a, a stack of hay, you know, but no, no, no. no. That's what it used to be, but it's beautiful. Like all the, you know, the stones being beautifully um, cleaned and rendered and, you know, it's got that feel, but you've really, you've got to go check this out on their website um, and see the photos because I was having a look before we did the podcast. I obviously had been here before, but I wanted to see the website and understand a bit more about it and a great sort of gallery there where everyone, you get an idea of this place and um, even telling my wife before this, she's like, God. How have we not been out there before? And I was, I was heading off from um, Europe this year. I'm thinking, I've wasted all this time never being out here. It's just a beautiful place. Yeah, thanks, um, Mitch. Yeah, it's quite an interesting place because actually, you know, I've I've always lived in Banyoles rather than in Girona. 
um, and you know Rocco Corba has been a, a prominent part of of my you know training routine <laughs> or even rise in in cycling um, it's where I do a lot of my interval work and you know going to Rocco Corba quite often at least sometimes twice a week in in the intense like um, intensity training block I had never seen this place either mm. you know so uh, when we were brought up here by an estate agent to have a look I was also surprised I thought how did I not know it was here, you know? So it's not a surprise that, that you didn't know where it was or that you haven't been out here. So um, yeah, we, we're trying to kind of put ourselves on the map so that more people come out and, and see what it's all about. Well, let's talk about the name quickly because we're going to go heaps and talk about your career as a cyclist. At the moment, you're just sounding like a hotel owner, but that's not true. <laughs> but let's talk about the name of this place, Rocca Corba, and such a infamous climb here in Girona for the people, the, the pros who live around here, but also for the locals. They do a lot of events on there, um, hikes to the top, people always riding up there. I don't know why you would ride up there if you were just a casual cyclist because <laughs> it's actually a really hard climb. And I was riding with you last week and you held the Strava, which is, for anyone out there who doesn't know what that is, that's the record for the climb, the female Strava. And we were talking about it, joking, yeah, I'm going to go for it. You've just come back from um, Tokyo Olympics, so your form is very good. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get into that a bit later. You're known for your climbing ability. And you're like, I'm, I want to break my own record. And I want to go under 30 minutes. And as we walked down today, I was like, how'd you go? Did you end up doing it? Tell me the story. When did it happen? So on Friday uh, last week, um, my coach actually wrote it into my training plan. So, you know, I'm actually, I'm heading off to Norway <laughs> what, tomorrow. What was, what was it really? Rock a cobra attempt, break the record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is I'm heading to Norway actually tomorrow for a tour of Norway and we have a, a mountaintop um, stage there, the queen stage. So yeah, it, it seemed pretty fitting, you know, to, to usually if I do intervals, it would be like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes max. Um, you know, so I never really get to the top of the rock a cobra climb. So, but this time I thought, well, you know, I have this form. I want to put it to good use. Okay, some might say the Rocco Corba Strava, but you already had it. But to me, it's it's really special, you mm. know, the Rocco Corba um, climb and that Strava. I'm actually not a big uh, Strava QAM person, but Rocco Corba is the one that mm-hmm. I'm very protective of. And I think, you know, with good reason, um, mm-hmm. it is the name of our business. So, um, yeah, I mean, my previous time was 31.05. And, yeah, it's a pretty decent time, and I was quite happy with that. I did it um, directly after the lockdown. Um, so, you know, I'd done all this training on, on Zwift, and, um, you know, Rocco Corbett had kind of been a bit of motivation because every day I walk out of my um, kitchen door, I literally look to Rocco Corbett. Mm. It's right there. You know, we're literally at the base of the climb. So I see it every day. And especially during the lockdown period, it provided a lot of motivation. So having done all that training um, on Zwift, I decided the first day we had freedom, I went up and I set this 31.05 time, which I was pretty happy with. Mm. But it wasn't quite below the 30-minute mark, you know? To put that in perspective, my best time out there is 32 minutes, I think, somewhere around that. Yeah. I've never really specifically gone for an attempt, but <laughs> that's not saying I could do much faster than that. So to put that in perspective for everyone, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, actually, you know, I've hold, I've held the QM for quite a number of years. So my previous time before 31 was 34 minutes, I think it was. Um, and that was like in 2014. So it was quite a long time ago. But yeah, I mean, the men's times are pretty insane up there. So I think now it's becoming crazy competitive at the top end of the men. So it's like 26.50 something, I think, for the men. Oh, it's not far off, though. Not too far off. But, you know, breaking the 30-minute mark was important to me because I felt kind of felt like, you know, I'm getting that much closer. Now it's almost a challenge with the men for me yeah. rather than a challenge, you know, um, with, the, with the women's time. So, you know, I'm trying to kind of get closer and closer to the top 10. I think top 10 is 
is quite a quite a big step up. But I think now, if I put myself in, I've, I've just kicked Freddie Overt um, off 16th spot. <laughs> so sorry for that, Freddie. Um, but yeah, I was really happy with my new time, which is 29:16. So unbelievable! I broke the 30-minute mark uh, last Friday. Oh, what was it like? Because we rode up there last week, and we just sort of had a bit of a tickle with about 500 meters to go, and I quickly realized thank god we weren't racing any more than that <laughs> what was it like that last 500 as we came up were you, were you completely on the limit or were you like i can imagine you're on the limit but i mean were you looking down going oh my god i'm gonna break it or you just didn't even look well no it was going pretty well except yeah i was really suffering at the end but i i saved enough to be able to to actually get out the saddle and to mm. really attack that last part so said. i think we discussed this a bit mm. but i have to be honest I did get a little bit excited again on the lower slopes. Um, you know, I do so much interval work on the first, you know, three Ks or first section of the climb that it's just so familiar to me. So I, I, I can't help but get excited there. So, mm. um, you know, I, I put in a really solid effort there. And I, I actually, because Rokokobi is a strange climb, you know, you, you start first with, it, it appears to be pretty manageable, you know, it's, it's nothing super crazy, it's nice and gradual. Um, and you're thinking, what is everyone talking about? You know, this climb's not as bad as everyone's saying, but then you, you kind of get to a point uh, where you, you crest and you go a little bit downhill and then you hit mm. the steeper slopes, you know, and then it's pretty relentless. Um, and so, you know, I've always thought to myself, I have to be really careful of that first part because if you overpace it on that first part, then you really suffer at the end. And anyways, you know, once again, as I said, I got a bit overexcited and I was really hitting some amazing watts on, on the lower slopes and I got to that first crest in less than eight minutes. And to give some perspective, mm. usually I'm hitting around nine minutes there, you wow. know, so it was already a minute faster than what I would usually be doing. Were and you I freaking thought, out or were you like, oh, I'm on a good one? I was like, well, I'm feeling pretty good here. You know, I was, I was happy because I sort of set out a strategy for myself. So I knew that, you know, I needed to be less than nine minutes over that crest. And then I also knew that there's another point where you get to like a flat field oh, yeah, yeah. Um, before the one, la one and a half K, you know, the last one and a half K. And I knew I had to be there around 24 minutes as well if I wanted to, to go sub 30. You what know? were you? I was exactly 24 minutes there. Ooh. So I was all on point, you know. And so I thought, okay, well, now I'm, I'm in for cracking the 30. But at the end, when you're really suffering, I have to admit that there are points where you're thinking, am I going to do it? You know, so mm. I, that really made me dig deeper, get out the saddle and really suffer to, to the top. And I managed to put in quite a nice surge for a minute, um, you know, over like 340 watts, I think, in, in the last minute. Cool. So, um, yeah, it was pretty Did pretty you go good. right to the top? Because you told me last time you stopped at the line where you should stop. But because there's, there's actually two or three telephone towers and stuff up there and they bug it up your time. This yeah. is back after lockdown. You had to repeat it because yeah. you're... Your um your computer got buggered up and the time didn't record. So the, the second time you did, you actually went about twenty or thirty meters past the line. And that's actually almost the hardest part because <laughs> you're putting everything in to cross the line in yeah. in the time, and then you still have to keep going because, as I said to you before, I've messed it up by stopping too soon. So I had to really push on to the gate. There's like mm. a gate um which sort of you know blocks the entry to to the telephone tower so you really have to push on to that gate and then i have to admit i totally collapsed on on the floor completely overheated and yeah luckily i had i had support with a oh, um, yeah. following car call was in the following car with some family as well because we have family Great. visiting so they took part in in the whole thing and yeah so they came and poured hot wa uh, hot water sorry oh, cold oh, water. Nice hot water hot water <laughs> would have been a big mistake <laughs> all right well great i'm glad you told us that story because that is awesome let's go right back to the beginning 
um, well, maybe to the beginning of your cycling, how you became into cycling, how you became a professional. Um, and from what I understand, you met your husband, Carl, at university in Stellenbosch. Yeah. Uh, you were studying chemical engineering. Mm-hmm. And you guys met there. Previous to that, you were doing a whole lot of sports. You were quite a sporty person, but cycling wasn't really involved, was it? Yeah, so I mean, um, growing up at school, I, I always loved sport, um, but yeah, I, I was never really, you know, I was always, you know, second team rather than the first team. You know, popular sports in South Africa um, at school are usually hockey or tennis or athletics, you know, and I was pretty good at all of them, but never the best, you know, and um, part of the reason was, you know, I was always really small. Um, I'm born in December, which South Africa runs January to December, our school year, so I was almost a, a year young uh, for my class, and always fast explosive but too small not strong enough you know for all those sports um, that I took part in so you know I had this childhood dream of going to the Olympic Games but when I finished school I kind of put it to bed I thought well you know that's it you know I'm I'm, I'm not going to cut it. Were you thinking of any sports at that time? I remember when I started back in primary school weirdly I got into fencing I don't know you know <laughs> that never pursued much more than one or two years but yeah. were there some sports that you were like oh, I think this is going to be it? Oh, Mitch, now you're leading on to another whole storyline. Right, well, give, give me a quick one. I'll give, you, I'll give you a quick one. Yeah, I actually always dreamt of going to the Olympic Games for horse riding. Ah, believe equestrian. Believe it or not. Yes. Cool. Yeah, but actually had a really bad horse riding accident in my final year at school and a bad head injury. But that's a, another whole story. I did hear about that, actually. But yeah. yes, we can talk about that <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. Anyways, so finishing school, I put... Um, you know, sporting career to bed, and I took a gap year, had some fun, and then went back to um, to Stellenbosch University to study engineering, and um, that's where I met Carl. Mm. And he had a very different upbringing. You know, um, he really excelled at sport, um, multiple, you know, South African colours in multiple sports. You know, he was just really good at everything he did, from hockey to squash to triathlon to cycling. You know, any sport you name it, swimming, he was good at them all. Um, but he didn't perform so well academically, you know, and so I, I left a little bit out of the story. At school, I did perform well mm. academically as well. Anyways, we met at university and we were probably complete opposites, but yeah, they say opposites attract, right? So um, yeah, we started dating quite shortly after, um, you know, first year started. And, you know, I, I really loved Carl's sporting side and it really intrigued me. So, you know, I, naturally I started to pay interest to his sport at the time, which was triathlon, and started trying to, to get into it and to learn, uh, you know, to swim, to run, um, to ride. And interestingly enough, you know, so this is another story, but our first test week um, that we took part in, I, was, I actually studied for the first test week. Mm. Whereas Carl was too busy with his triathlon training. Um, so he didn't really take it seriously. And so we did our first test week and we were in the same class getting our results back. And um, a funny story is that actually the maths paper came back and um, the lecturer stood at the front of the class and she you know, held up one paper. She said, the top mark of the class is, I don't know, 90 something percent. Great job, you're on the right track. You know, here's your paper, come collect. Bottom mark is 17 percent. 17 or 17? 17 percent. Oh my gosh, okay. You're you don't belong here, you know, and chucked it on on the table. And so I love all, the announcement in front of everyone. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's a really harsh to be honest. Yeah. But anyway, so we went up to go collect the papers, and both Carl and I were struggling to find ours, only to find that mine was the top mark, and his was the lowest mark. 
Uh, Carl just got the fright of his life. He's like this new girlfriend of mine, you know, and I'm like, oh, here we go again, chasing off another guy because I'm too, you know, too intimidating. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, he, he chucked his paper down and actually literally hot-footed it out of oh, the class. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Anyways, I went looking for him and found him back at his res um, room, um, which is his, you know, university digs. And I, I made a deal with him. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll mentor you with the academic side of things if you teach me how to ride a bike, you Ooh. know? And so this is how we did kind of a trade-off. And it was quite funny, you know, how, well, it was quite amazing how during the course of our university career, you know, um, I would really help him with his, to, to learn how to apply himself, because that's literally all it was, you know? He was so distracted with all his sporting um, that he just needed to learn how to apply himself. Mm. And then he... He started coaching and helping me with uh, with my cycling, you know. And of course, I tried triathlon at first, but I kept getting running injuries and also just not a great swimmer, to be totally honest. Mm. Um, and so that's where this, I started to focus more on the cycling. And so by the end of our, our um, university degree, I was actually off, you know, I was supposed to be doing um, my final final thesis and I was actually doing something on, on biodiesel. Mm. Um, but I was off racing in France, Tour of Ardèche, um, with a club team and Carl was stuck in the lab, you know, doing my final runs of my biodiesel so that I could finish <laughs> my degree. So it was quite funny how the, the roles reversed and yeah, quite a cool story, I suppose. Give us a, a, a gomads or a dummy's guide to what, what is chemical engineering like? You know, for everyone out there wondering, well, what what do they end up becoming? And what, probably everyone knows except for me. Tell no. me anyway. Yeah, so it's actually quite can be quite misleading. You know, chemical engineering. Then often I get the chemistry questions. Yeah. You know, um, but the reality is that um, chemistry was only you know a semester of my degree really. So chemical engineering is actually not really anything to do with the details of chemistry. It's more got to do with sort of bigger processes. So sometimes they refer to it as process engineering, which is mm. is more applicable really. So it can be anything from um, you know making fuel so the distillation process so it's all about um flow of energy in and out you know and mm. balancing the energy and yeah i mean designing big processes from you know wine production distillation when it comes to fuel there's pharmaceuticals there's various injury uh, in various industries you can get involved in um but i mean technically speaking engineering is really just a mindset it's a problem solving mindset so um you know it's something that i still can apply to mm, everyday life to ask you, yeah. yeah because a lot of people are like because chemical engineering is sort of um known to be one of the toughest degrees out there and the the big reason why it's so tough is because of the workload really you know it is quite a big uh, workload and yeah i mean it's very mathematical um so it's a tough degree so many people say well don't you feel like you've wasted uh, your your time and and efforts in engineering and you know my direct answer to that is no because it literally you know it's it's not like a degree in medicine where you know if you're not practicing as a doctor you know it's it's totally wasted engineering is a it's a mindset so mm. it's a problem solving mindset it's also you know you taught a lot about management um skills and yeah i mean it's just a good mindset to bring to to all different parts of life well let's know? have a look at these two examples you know to cycling you became new to cycling you came in a bit later you came in the sport and you quickly rose to the top. Then, you know, we, we talked about it already, Rocket Corp was cycling, you know, having over having this Messiah and like problem solving, how are we going to make this work? Mm. But let's go back to cycling because you came into the Peloton um, in 2000 and 
2010, was it? Yeah. Yes, 2009 started cycling practically. Mm. Yeah. From triathlon. 2010, you were already over in Europe racing. Mm-hmm. And pre- pretty quickly sort of found your mark. Um, you're already 17th in the Giro that year. Yeah. Um, Giro Rosa, that is. And then, you know, eight years later, you're finishing second in the Giro. Mm-hmm. Very quick progression. I've, I've completely missed out a lot of stuff in between. But what I like about those two results there is it just shows that progression. Being 17th, some people may see that as a bit of a lucky chance. You know, first time you get there, maybe you get up the road lucky one day. People don't know who you are, so they let you do what you want. But that consistency, you've also been fourth there a few times mm-hmm. to be second at, in 2018, showed that, okay, the first year I arrived was just me being very novice but you could see my talent mm-hmm. and then you show that over the years tell me about those first that first year when you arrived in europe wanting to follow that passion mm-hmm. and then being straight into the pro peloton how did you feel yeah well i mean a, a lot of sort of you know the progression my progression in cycling has a lot to do i suppose with the numbers really you know um so the way that i actually you know broke into cycling as such was by doing a power test so it's actually almost quite applicable you know coming from an engineering background which is all about analytics and problem solving and numbers you know well that's pretty much been um, the reason for my my rise in in pro cycling so you know I kind of you know I recognized my talent at university first started you know just by racing sort of league races in 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 the area you know um, fun rides and stuff like that and then university championships you know we have Mm. like university champs you know won that you know sort of started to realize okay I have some potential here you know then started winning some national races you know performing well at the national championships and then um, as I said in my final year at engineering had the opportunity to race in Ardesh um, with with the club team and I came over to Ardesh I I got properly um, you know (laughs) solidly messed up there you know crashed and bike changes on a bike that was too big for me and all sorts of stuff but I absolutely fell in love with yeah. European pro cycling um, in that in that tour, and I realized this this is for me. You know, this is where I want to be. I don't want to be racing in South Africa. So the very next year is when you know I made that step to come over and to and to give it a shot shot in Europe. And Giro was actually pretty much my second race. You know, after arriving in Europe, because I also had the challenge of breaking my collarbone in October of 2019 and again in February of, uh, of not 2009 and then again in February of 2010 oh at the Tour of New Zealand which was supposed to be my first sort of international race so yeah I mean same collarbone same collarbone yeah because there was a plate you know oh, so yeah. you know how that happens you know first time break it put a plate in second time breaks at either end of the plate so mm. anyway so I had to take some time to come back from that and so Giro was sort of my first race overseas unbelievable um and yeah, you can say, you know, first time is luck. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I was really at the top challenging, you know, in the front of the race. You know, I was more or less, you know, one of those riders fighting it out for those middle positions, which as as cycling becomes more and more professional, you realize that, that you know, there's many people that don't even do that. You mm. know, like you've got your job um, in a team and you do your job and then you're done. You know, whereas I was one of those fighting it out for the top yeah, 20. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because it can be respected and disrespected yeah you know if you're the leader of a smaller team fighting for 17th it's honorable but if you're 
third or fourth pillar in a team and you're still pushing on after you've done your job, it can be then, looked upon funny. Exactly. So I understand what you're saying. Yeah. But I mean, women's cycling was also in a very different place at that mm. time, you know. So it was more about, you know, we weren't getting exposure. So results were our exposure, you know. So I think there was more of that. There wasn't as good teamwork mm. anyways um, in those years. But anyway, finished seventh in my in my first uh, Giro. And that's when I realized, okay, you know, I'm – I'm on the right track, you know, let's, let's give this a go. And so I came back in, in 2011. And um, it's funny how the Giro sort of played quite a big part in my career in terms of keeping track of, mm. you know, because that's the other thing with pro sport. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is that sometimes, you know, I, I didn't want to just be someone making up the numbers in the peloton. You know, I wanted to make a real career out of it. So it was a good way of tracking progression and rea- and kind of keeping taps on whether this is something I should continue to pursue or whether, you know, it's time to hang up the bike, you know. And so it went from 17th, I think, to 13th. And then, I don't know, 10th or 8th. I can't remember. Mm. I don't mem- memorize the exact, but there was always a progression. Every year there was improvement. Um, and then I think 2015th was fourth place. Mm. Um, and then finally 2018 second place. So, you know, it was it was a natural progression, mm. pretty fast progression, but it was the way, you know, I kept track of, of whether I was on track as, as a pro cyclist. So it forms quite a, a significant part of my career. It does because you have this feeling like you are getting better. For instance, you're in the bunch, you're finding it easier to move around. and But if you don't have that parameter that okay we've got our numbers but sometimes numbers aren't everything it's about yeah. racing it's about putting well, those a lot numbers of the time numbers aren't everything yeah exactly putting those numbers into the race and combining your race skill craft with the numbers mm. and that's what the end result is and you had that every year i'm going to do that same race same girls mm. you know well more or less you know everyone's mm. going to be prepared for that say if you will your tour de france of you know the female peloton yeah um Tell me about, well, you just mentioned a couple of times there in when you decided to come over in 2.10 and 2.11, you spoke about like, I'm going to come over. Was that a decision you made or the teams you were contracted on or how did that come about? Because being a bit of an unknown, how do you get onto the into the women's world team, you know? Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting. It's evolving now. Um, but back then, you know, for me... Um, so I was actually, my talent was recognized by a local South African team, you know, and, and the sort of pro, pro-am um, sort of industry in South Africa was pretty strong at the time, you know. So there was quite a lot of racing nationally in South Africa and there were a couple of, of so-called professional teams in South Africa which were paying salaries. Um, and so actually, you know, I was noticed by one of these teams um, and that's where my first sort of contract came was with a South African uh, professional team. Mm. Um, and then, l- luckily for me, um, the guy who, who owned the team in South Africa that I was riding for, you know, he had quite, you know, he was a, he was a businessman, you know. Um, so he had experience in, in other aspects of life and in business as such. So he had kind of bigger vision, really. And he noticed, um, because of my numbers, that I had um, the potential to go way further than just the national level mm. of cycling. So that's how this whole doing the Tour of Ardesh came about, you know. So he helped... Um, to organize that. So we actually sent a South African club team to oh, the Tour wow. of Ardesh to take part in the Tour of Ardesh. And it was there um, that I also recognized that um, in order to make a career for myself, you know, of course, a lot of people think that that you get offers just because of your performance, but that's not an, always the way it happens. I'm sure you know as well. Mm. Like it's often got to do with contacts and networks, you know. So mm. I, I knew very quickly that 
I needed to reach out to people, be friendly, you know, try and, and approach other teams, other directors. Um, and so during the tour of Odesh, you know, I was kind of noticed by Lotto Sudol um, mm. at the time. And I, I was friendly to, to the team director. And so together with the South African team, we started to make contact with Lotto Sudol. And so um, that was the first team I rode for in Europe. But I wasn't paid a salary mm. um, by Lotto Sudal. You know, it was it was literally an exchange. Like, okay, we'll give you an opportunity on the team. You know, you can you can take your time to prove yourself to us, but you need to make ends meet yourself. Mm. So it was actually really complicated. You know, coming from South Africa, having to make that complete shift, leaving the comfort of your home country, your family, um, all all the the support you have back there, to come over to Europe and to try and make a career and how were we going to afford it anyways you know my husband and I were actually very lucky to always come over and do it together so I had his support all the time Mm. but I had to be pretty creative about how we would make ends meet and so you know I that's where I'm actually glad I had a degree behind my name because I I obviously learned a lot about professional putting together uh, professional documents and stuff so I put sponsorship proposals together you know and Mm. I managed to get a couple of of personal endorsements um, Mm. to be able to to finance um, uh, trying to make a career in Europe. But it was quite a challenge, you know, because I wasn't in South Africa all the time. So bringing exposure to South African um, sponsors whilst exactly. racing abroad, you know, it, anyways. It's difficult to sell yourself for that. You're like, oh, well, exactly. great, come to this function, whatever. You're like, well, I'm actually in Europe. You yeah, know? Exactly. Do you have interest in promoting something in Europe? Because Ex- that's where I need to do it. Exactly. So for the first couple of years, I'd actually say I was almost riding two seasons you know with Mm. South Africa being southern hemisphere and Europe being northern hemisphere I was riding all year round you know which is not ideal either you know you need usually you would take an off season so that became quite demanding but that's essentially how I broke into Europe I came over here just taking what I could you know getting that contract on on Lotto Sudal but not being paid so having to find other ways of making money and it was only really you know I actually did prove myself you know to to Lotto over the I wrote for them for four years, so until 2013. 13. Yeah, 2013 yeah. Was, was my last year with them. I never really got good money from them, and it was just the case of that's the type of team they were at the time, you know, Belgium team mm. doing their best. They had a men's team, but they, the women's team never got the same support as, as the men's team. So it was only in 2014 that I really earned my first salary um, in Europe. Is that common for many females to start their career like that to just get their foot in the door is there a percentage that you would say in teams are riding unpaid yeah that is really it is a big part of women's cycling it's starting to change of course now with with the world tour and with more you know more professionalism coming to the sport more sponsors coming to the sport and and of course that's only through more exposure which Mm. i'm really grateful women's cycling is getting more exposure and it's really wonderful to see that for example now i have quite a a lot of really young teammates you know that are 19 20 and they're immediately or you know maybe one year and then the next year they're in a world tour team and they're earning minimum salary and i'm it's really great to see Mm. that it's really encouraging for the sport because all of a sudden it's becoming a viable career for for youngsters like that um and that's what we need for the sport to grow and for um, for the depth to grow um, mm. so that's really encouraging but there are still a lot of girls out there that you know really have to be very creative about how they make ends meet and how how they afford themselves the opportunity to get exposure in Europe mm. and especially for for South Africans and Australians as well many of the southern hemisphere countries it's really difficult because 
you know, how do you get your foot foot in the door? And especially even with visa issues, mm. you know, that it's also not easy. You know, at the moment for a lot of young, talented South African women, you know, they can only come over on tourist visas, um, which is only three months, really. Mm. You know, so three months is that enough time to really be noticed? Um, no. So there still are a lot of challenges uh, for the women's peloton, to be honest. I want to speak of that, about that too. I want to speak about the actual Tokyo road race. But before we get there, I want you to give me a little bit of an overview of your three experiences, firstly at the London Olympics, then at, the, uh, at Rio and Tokyo. Um, you've had pretty consistent results within across those three. Um, Olympics being a big part of your career focus, um, I guess just hearing what you're saying there it's a good way for you to put everything you're saying back to the country say because in Australia and I think in every country everyone understands the Olympics mm-hmm. yeah. trying to explain pro cycling to a country that is not immersed in pro cycling can be very difficult yeah. but when you finally can credit it with the Olympic Games that sort of credits everything justifies what you've been trying to sell over these those years mm-hmm. Tell me about those three Olympics, you know, big, big question, but more importantly, the most recent Olympics, what they really meant for you each time they came around Mm -hmm. and how important that is really for your career and personally. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the Olympic Games growing up, as I mentioned earlier, as a child, you know, it's, I think it's every child's dream or obviously every child that has interest in sport, you know, to, to go to the Olympic Games. It's mystical, you know, it's like, it's what dreams are made of. Um, and so, you know, with London, you know, when I, I broke into the professional cycling scene and I started to realize, wow, okay, Olympics is a possibility mm. for me. It's, it, it could be a dream that can come true. Um, of course, it was, it was so massive, you know, I, I, I completely immersed myself in this idea that I can actually go to the Olympic Games. But small mistake from my side, you know, um, because I, I've always had really good numbers. So in terms of like talent, you know, genetic talent, like I have a lot of talent. Um, but as you say, like cycling is not always about the numbers or the talent. Mm. There's a lot of other things that come in into play as well. Tactics, you know, race savvy, all those type of things. So based on my talent, you know, quite quickly, people started saying things like, Oh, you're not just going to the Olympic Games. You could medal at the Olympic mm. Games. So, if you if you put it into perspective, I'd only really gotten into cycling properly in 2009, and now London is 2012. Mm-hmm. So, only after cycling in Europe, only for a couple of months in 2010, because of all the collarbone issues, then a season in 2011. 2012 was only my second full season, really. You know. And I'd only represented um, South Africa once before. So I missed out on, on the 2010 Worlds because of another collarbone oh. break <laughs> on the other, other side Your poor this time. Lines, but gosh. yeah, I, I really had a baptism of fire <laughs> into pro cycling with three collarbone breaks in the space of 12 months. But anyways, I missed out on, on the Worlds in Australia. Um, and so the first time I represented South Africa for, at the World Championships was in Copenhagen in 2011. And London was the very next year. Oh my gosh. So I was very, very green, you know, mm. very inexperienced. But I also had all these people telling me, Ashley, you can medal, you can medal. So if I'm totally honest, London was a very overwhelming experience mm. and actually not a very positive experience for me because it was just too much too soon, really, you know. Um, and it's a little bit sad because the London Games were really special in terms of, 
you know, the country really embraced it, the support, you know, the crowds were absolutely amazing. But once again, that was totally overwhelming for me because if you also put it into perspective, like women's cycling didn't necessarily attract those kind of crowds um, at other races, mm. you know, so like the Giro and all these other races we were taking part in, you know, um, we weren't attracting those kind of crowds. So all of a sudden in London, the streets were lined mm. with people and it was just, it was so overwhelming. Um, It'd be great so, to go there now as a seasoned, well-seasoned pro exactly. to take advantage of all that, but it yep. was just too much too soon. Too much too soon. And I actually, you know, there was a, a crucial moment on Box Hill where a breakaway went away in the women's race. It was pouring with rain. It was quite a dramatic race and I actually just missed that breakaway really mm. so I wasn't far off but back in in the peloton you know the chase wasn't very well organized the breakaway rode away and it came down to a sprint for fourth fifth sixth you know the the minor positions um on on the London mall is what mm. you call it right um and so I finished 16th which is actually not a bad finish no. you know for your first Olympic Games but I walked away really really disappointed and then went on to do the time trial super green super inexperienced no proper work on on bike fits and and stuff like that so my equipment wasn't really up to scratch either and i finished stone last in <laughs> in the london time trial so that just added to to everything and i have to i have to admit i was actually a little bit depressed and almost started questioning myself after the well, London did you get games. a bit of kickback from like the media and stuff from South Africa like oh this girl she's supposed to be really good and she underperformed and well yeah I, it was a bit of kickback as well because there was a controversial selection um mm. in South Africa at the time for the woman and there was the you know the the um, South African sweetheart you know who had mm. been pretty much like the Mariana Voss of South Africa at the time, you know, cycling since she was really young, you know, winning all the races. She was left off the team mm. um, for various reasons. I'm not going to get stuck no. into that. But anyways, yes, so I did get kicked back because she wasn't selected and I was. And then I only finished 16th, you know. Um, so but, then fast forward to Rio. So I exactly. know, Yeah, tell me about that. So then I thought, okay, well, the Olympic Games, if I want to perform at the Olympic Games, I have to use the four-year um, period to build up and um, I have to put all the things in place you know to to make sure that I have the correct support the correct preparation to to be able to deliver at the Rio Olympic Games and so I maybe got a bit too carried away with trying to control everything mm. that I could you know and I got great support behind me great um, you know personal endorsements South African um, you know our Olympic Committee all these people and you know, I had a pretty good build-up uh, to the 2016 uh, Rio Games, and I actually went in as a favorite. You know, the course was really well suited to me. Mm, I'd had hilly. had very good performances leading up to it. You know, I was part of a good professional setup at the time, um, Savella Bigler. So, you know, everything was on track uh, to perform and to get that medal at Rio. And then, on the day, um, you know, all of that, you know, all that effort that I put in. Um, I just took on too much responsibility on the day, you know, mm. so, um, you know, it was like a weight on my shoulders and in the race, I overthought things um, at the expense of listening to my body and I had some small mechanical issues with my bike, which I totally overwrote, you know, with the power of my mind and, and mm. you know, all this responsibility and didn't do a bike change, which was r really so silly because it was so simple to do. And um, yeah, that really cost me. 
um, at the end of the day, I had some rubbing of, of brakes and which I'll is, ride through it. Yeah, exactly. Right through it up this really steep climb. And yeah, yeah. It, it just cost me. I, I finished 10th, which again was respectable if you take everything into consideration. But it was once again a disappointing experience. Mm. And so fast forward to Tokyo. Because I, I'm seeing the progression, you know, not only physically, but the learning experience. I know we're talking four years, four years, four years, but there's such big events. You have mm. to take it in, never go into an Olympics. Yeah. All the extra stuff apart from the race, you have to be able to absorb that and use it as positive energy. Exactly. So fast forward to, to Tokyo, um, you know, I'd learned so much um, from the past and a lot of that came out in the fact that you know, I needed, that's probably been one of the biggest weaknesses that I've had as a cyclist is that, you know, I'm so headstrong and so in into the numbers and, and processes and all that type of thing that often, you know, it was at the expense of, of listening to gut instinct and, mm. and um, having instincts in the races, you know, tactics and savvy in the races. So I tried to kind of um, learn in the period after Rio to get more in touch with with my body and with my instinct and and all those type of things. And then to go to, to Tokyo, you know, being more sort of at peace, you know, mm. and not trying to, to control too much um, in, in the process. And so I have to be honest, like I, I had a really positive experience in Tokyo. I arrived there in the best possible shape I could. Um, I was on great form. I was in great mental space, you know, even having had the COVID pandemic before, you know, it really, it played a big role in, in helping me evolve as a person and grow uh, mentally. So, you know, although I walk away from Tokyo once again without a medal or a, a real result um, to show for it, you know, I'm just really happy with, with the opportunity I've had to be able to say that I'm, I'm a three-time Olympian. Um, road cycling is not an easy sport, you know. I think you would totally agree, mm. you know. Um, it's not necessarily the, the strongest rider wins on the day. There's so much that comes into play in terms of tactics and luck. And um, yeah, unfortunately, the, the road race in, in Tokyo ended up being a very interesting race. In my opinion, women's cycling had been really moving forward. And I'm talking about the racing here. Yeah. Been really moving forward. And, and like you spoke about in the beginning, there wasn't a whole lot of teams really organized. But in the, in the last few years, let's say the last five years, things have been really progressing. And there's a real professional way of racing. Mm-hmm. Um, this yeah. is only from the exterior, only watching. Yeah, yeah. And I felt like the the Olympics is a funny thing too, but I really feel like they'd, it, it felt like it taken a step back in my opinion. Definitely. I could be completely wrong, but you tell me what your experience is from, first of all, tell me about the road race and then that yeah. second question I've sort of posed. Well, the road race, if I can sum it up in one word, it was chaos. And I think, I think that's actually the way it came across really uh to the viewer as well which is a real shame because as you say um you know women's cycling has really been progressing uh really well especially in the past two three years i would say you know and we and we you know we're really starting to demonstrate that um, the sport is growing in depth it's it's way more professional mm. you know it's um getting a lot more exposure which is obviously of course necessary to progress the sport and then you have an event like the olympic games where the whole world is watching you know and and the whole world in terms of 
people from all different walks of life you know the reality of of um, road cycling is you know as popular as it is you know there are people that follow cycling and they understand cycling you know and they are the type of people that will watch most cycling events and and the world championships maybe Tour de France is a bit of an exception you know it, it attracts a lot of attention from people from different walks of life but the Olympic Games is really a unique event because mm. people watch the games because it's the games and they end up watching a whole lot of sports probably that they wouldn't watch um, usually you know well you and I do it you know I watch exactly. a whole lot of sports I was like oh, how great is this I'll only ever watch it once every four years exactly you know so it's that kind of event so there's quite a lot of sort of pressure that kind of rides on it not only in terms of performance as athletes but in terms of you know getting the right message out you know to presentation the of the sport to the exactly. world exactly yeah. yeah and unfortunately you know women's cycling you know what the people saw on the day was was definitely not a true reflection of of the state that women's cycling mm. is in at the moment but then i suppose we need to have a little look at why you know why did it happen this way and we well, explain what if anyone out there didn't well saw it but didn't understand what you're talking about or if they missed it explain what sort of happened and what what sort of gave you and me this feel so i mean the reality is is that um you know breakaway went at literally kilometer zero um it was a breakaway of a lot of you know smaller nations or lesser known riders um and the the gap became really big really fast you know so there wasn't a lot of cooperation in the peloton no one really wanted to commit to a chase and um, what obviously happened as a result is that the breakaway lasted. Well, one rider from the breakaway lasted till the very end and won the race. And it's really a rider that you wouldn't have expected to have won the gold medal at the Olympic Games. Now, that can have positives as well if we're mm. talking about the Olympic Games. But, okay, let's go back to women's cycling and why that wasn't really a good reflection of women's cycling. Um, so, you know, it, it looked like chaos. Just And that's how it felt to me as mm. a rider as well. And what's a really a, a shame in a way is that, as I said to you, you know, I'd put in all this hard work to be in really great shape um, to try and control you know what I could control without over controlling things or overthinking things you know so I arrived there in good shape and I was ready to to give it my best on the day but coming from South Africa you know I had one teammate and our reality is this teammate wasn't very experienced really um, racing in Europe either you know she'd come from very little racing in South Africa because of, of COVID. She hasn't been in Europe um, much at all racing. So, you know, I didn't really know what I could expect from her. So I was pretty much ready to be on my own, you know, as such a, a solo rider. But that's not what road cycling mm. is. You know, road cycling is not about individuals. It's about team. Mm. And that's often what's very difficult for the greater public to understand because one person wins and one person gets on the podium. But in order for that person to win... There's a lot that happens behind the scenes in terms of, of teamwork and support, you know, within um, within the team. And the strange thing for us as as women in the Olympic Games is that we only have 67 riders. That's the maximum, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's 69. I think it's 69, 67 or 69. Yeah. But either way, it's a very small peloton. It's a very small peloton. So if we're talking about normal world, world tour races or even the world championships, we're usually riding at least 150 riders. You know, sometimes even 180. You know, mm. that's a really big peloton. But let's say on average 150. You know, so your your peloton is almost a third of the size of what it should usually be. So you, you, this means that usually a team is six riders, and usually every team has six riders. Six riders, but in this case, um, the maximum size of the team was four riders, mm. and it's a, a ranked system. You know, so the top five teams have four riders, then the teams from six to to ten, the next five teams, they have 
three mm. riders usually, then two riders, then one. But now the strange thing with this Olympic Games is that the riders um, in the top 100, ranked in the top 100 of the world, if they haven't qualified through country ranking, they qualify themselves through their rider ranking. Oh. And then they subtract from, because there's this limit of 69 riders. Right. They can't go over that limit, the IOC or the Olympic Games, you know. So they start subtracting. So it meant that the teams that usually should have had three and two riders, a lot of them lost their third or second rider. Oh. And so it was literally... Um, it was literally five teams of four, and then on the last minute, a couple of teams like Belgium, Canada, and Poland got a third rider last minute. So we had three teams of three riders, and then there were a lot of twos and ones. Mm. So No it, collaboration. Absolutely no collaboration. Yeah. And so what happened is is that also, um, you know, in women's cycling, it, it's, it's no secret that the Dutch are super dominant, mm. you know. So they are that nation that I mean I think I'd love to know the statistics but I wouldn't be surprised if half of the peloton is made up of Dutch riders oh is that right <laughs> yeah oh. so they, I didn't actually know that they're super super dominant in women's cycling I just assumed at the very top end I didn't realise it's just like it's a dominance by numbers too yeah it's a dominance by numbers and I think it, I mean the reality is is that they grow up on bikes you know mm. so they they ride bikes to school they you know there's so much racing that happens on you know um, for, the, for the kids in, in development so they're the depth in women's cycling in Holland is is really big. So go to the Olympic Games. Only four Dutch riders are there. You're taking away a lot of, of the really strong riders that are usually in the peloton in the first place. It's also really difficult for the Dutch because all of a sudden they have so many riders to choose from. So, of course, they go and pick their best riders. Four winners, no workers. Four winners. Yeah. And this was actually a, a subject of contention, like even within my own team, SD Works, because no secret, SD Works is also a Dutch team uh, as such, a Belgium sponsor, but Dutch. Registered. Uh, yeah, exactly. So um, a lot of my teammates, for example, especially Chantal uh, van den Broek-Blark, was really disappointed to be left off um, the Olympic team again because she's been left off, you know, in Rio as well. She's really well known to be a solid workhorse, you know, mm. and she actually won Strada Bianchi this year but still wasn't selected um, for the Olympic Games. And she kept saying, you know, they're really missing a worker. Who's going to work? Mm. Um, commit, 100% commit for the, the team goal. Exactly. And so... Again, going back to the dominance of the Dutch, it meant that the, the small peloton or the very select peloton that we had, everyone were looking, was looking to the Dutch. They're like, well, it's your race to lose. Mm. You know, they were the defending Olympic champion with, with Anna van der Brechen. It's your race to lose. So it's up to you guys to make the racing. Mm. So when that breakaway went away with all the small nations, um, everyone was looking to Holland to start the chase. And, you know, I actually know all of the all of the Dutch girls pretty well because, you know, I've been on a team with Annemiek van Fluten in 2015. I was on CCC with uh, Mariana and then now on SD Works with Anna and Demi. And even I was really thinking to myself, so who's going to work, you know? Went out to, what, 10 minutes or more with 130k to go or 120k Ex to go? Exactly. And then they started doing some really strange things. So obviously they amongst themselves couldn't couldn't decide who was going to work so they started like the the climb out of tokyo you know it was a, a pretty long it was like i don't know 40 kilometers that were pretty much going up um out of tokyo but always gradually and in the first part of that sort of 40k climbing it came in three steps you know so it would go up and then 
downhill a little bit and then up and downhill. And so what they started to do then is they were sending, they were taking turns to go on the front to make the pace. But, you know, so they would find the steepest part and go on the front, set a hard pace. But then as soon as it went down, they stopped. Mm. So that's not a way you bring it back no. a breakaway. You need you need cooperation, you need collaboration, you need to start talking to the other countries to say, okay, come on, let's work together. Well, no one's going to come and help you if you almost just got dropped when you got, when someone was pulling too hard. Exactly. Thinking, well, I'm not going to go up and help you now. I'm going to look exactly. after myself here. You know. So I even went back to my, my car in, in this whole process saying, what are the Dutch doing? Mm. I mean, this is ridiculous. And Do you think that's because they've never had to be in that situation they literally didn't know how to chase or do you think they were trying to do that in such a way that they showed their dominance that they should be the leader i literally i mean the dutch know how to race they know what bike racing is all about so they know what a chase is all about you know Mm. even just my experience with these riders that were in this team i know we've had discussions before in team meetings or even during racing have they ever i understand that they would know that but often i notice in the men's peloton winners are winners yeah and they know how to win but they don't necessarily know how to commit for someone else and that's nothing against them because you want them to be awesome Do you at know winning. what i what i think it boiled down to is the fact that there wasn't actually a leader in the team mm. so we talk it was a team full of leaders in but leaders in terms of winning but the interesting thing in pro cycling is that winners aren't necessarily leaders mm, in the team not, you don't want they, them to be the captain of the football they, team exactly they're yeah. not the captains because they they put so much focus and energy into winning and that's all they want to focus on which is so, great you know exactly. you need someone else to overlook and see the picture exactly and so that's quite interesting from my side kind of as a cyclist is that you know i am often uh, you know seen to be a race winner or the the team leader in terms of the result but i I can. I also have leadership qualities in terms of being able to to mm. look at the bigger picture and make some calls. But I know from all of those riders. I mean, my experience on teams with them, it's very clear that none of them are, are leaders in terms of, of making calls in the moment. I mean, Anna van der Brechen, I would say, is probably the the best leader out of all of them. But I, on the day, none of them actually took the lead and said, "Okay, girls, this is what we're going to do. This mm. is how we're going to chase." You know. So they they were obviously stepping on 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 each other or like on shells, you know, trying not to to piss each other off too much, you know. And and their their solution to the whole problem was okay, we'll all do equal, but then not all equal in in um, in a consistent way. It was like okay, acceleration off, acceleration mm. off. So it didn't work. And then when we got to the last sort of ten k's of this gradual climb all the way out of Tokyo that was pretty much the hardest part of of that 40k climb you know once again instead of all four or let's say at least two saying okay we're going to commit we're going to get on the front we're going to make the pace really hard consistently hard hopefully inspire some other nations to to work with us they started attacking Hmm. one by one so once again another the worst way to motivate a chase because all of a sudden like even myself I'm like what the hell are you doing you know so I'm just gonna every time someone attacked I got on the wheel to follow but I'm not gonna go through because if I go through they're just gonna attack me again Mm. so there was just no no um, consistency in the chase and yeah I suppose once again we were all just looking to them so at the end of the day um, you know they got all the flack uh, for the way the race panned out and 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 they felt pretty embarrassed. I mean, back in, in the hotel, 
um, just at the at the base of Mount Fuji, you could see the Dutch were avoiding um, eye contact with anybody or didn't want to speak to anyone in the hotel because they realized after the race that they'd that they'd really messed it up. And the reality is is that they didn't just mess it up for themselves; they actually messed it up for all of us. And not that I can, you know, really blame the Dutch for my result, but the reality is is that in an Olympic game where you you have such a select group and there isn't real teams you know there's various you know only five teams with four riders you know i'm i'm at the mercy of the tactics of the bigger teams um, there's very little that i can do um, to control my my own outcome you know mm. i can only hope that their tactics fall into favor of my strengths you know and that i can you know rise somehow to the top as as an individual and you know Post-race, you know, a couple of people that watched my race, for example, from South Africa back home, you know, the first question that would come to their minds would be, well, Ashley, why didn't you go in that breakaway? Mm. You know, you you could have won from that breakaway. And yeah, certainly I could have, but the Dutch would never have let me go because coming from a Giro, a really successful Giro beforehand and having won the Queen stage at the Giro just two weeks before. You're a real big favorite. You're, you know, of course. Exactly. So... That is frustrating, you know, coming from, you know, from my point of view, coming from an, a, a smaller cycling nation where I don't have the depth that the Dutch have. You know, it, it does, it is frustrating that I'm always at the mercy of, of the tactics or just, you know, for me to get a result in an Olympic Games or even a World Championships, it has to be the perfect day. Mm-hmm. You know, everything just has to fall perfectly into place and into favor of of my strengths and i have to have my best day at the same time so if you really think about it you know the the chances of that happening are pretty slim you know Mm. but it doesn't you know i have to still believe i still have to yeah i still have to come in with the motivation and the belief that i can because otherwise you know it would be totally pointless if the dutch had somehow that had come back together and the Dutch had won and it sort of it would have got overlooked that mistake, that tactic, the way they rode. Mm-hmm. The fact that she won was great for her, but also great for, I think, women's cycling too because to yeah. prove like, hey, now it really highlighted what happened in the race. It may have got overlooked if they'd somehow got away with it. Yeah. Ah, you know, and this is now, it's like, well, now we can actually look into this and then... I think pro racing is something different. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's had an effect on what will happen in pro racing? Or do you think that's no, moving well, forward f- in the right direction? For sure, um, Anna will, will never be able to pull off a move like she did <laughs> on the day because now she'll be a marked rider for sure. They will never let her go. Um, so, I mean, credit to her. She played her her unknown card or her joker card really well and it paid off on the day. Mm. And full credit to her. I mean, if you really do go look back on her Twitter and her preparation. I mean, she also comes from a highly educated background, a a PhD in mathematics. She's a professor um, at a university in in Switzerland, you know. So she put a lot of of science into her preparation. But interestingly enough, you know, all the science that she put into her preparation was – was to get a top 20, you know. She w- she would have been really happy with a top 20 result and at best a top 10, you know. Mm. So she the reality is she doesn't race for a professional team or she has in the past with Lotto, but 
but stopped racing for, for a team because she actually hates being in the peloton. Mm. So, I mean, she, she rode to, to her strengths. She attacked at kilometer zero. She was out there in a small breakaway. She had done all the heat acclimatization preparation. She had done all the endurance preparation. She'd ridden all the hours that she should have to be able to, to last that distance. And the Dutch underestimated her. Mm, um, the entire peloton underestimated yeah. her, really. And yeah, credit to her. She deserved the win. And quite a nice story in a way, if you really consider that the Olympic Games is actually supposed to be for amateur sports, you know, mm. then maybe it, it's quite nice to see somewhat of an amateur win the gold medal. Mm. You know, because that's also a subject of contention, you know, that all these pro sports like cycling, basketball, golf, tennis, you know, that they are Olympic sports. It creates a, another whole dynamic which mm. can be quite difficult to manage in terms of brand exposure you know of of the professional um, teams and then the limitations with the with the sponsors of the olympic games and that there's clashing you know so it's it's quite a complicated mm. topic altogether so in a way it's quite a nice story you know the the underdog or or the amateur came through and rose to the top on the day tell me now to finish us off here you're 35 years old now don't remind me of my age. But anyways, yes, 35. <laughs> um, tell me what it looks like now because uh, where we're sitting here, things, there's still quite, the place looks fantastic, but you ran me through here last week. There's still a lot more you want to do. Um, you're going to base yourself in Spain, Girona, for the for the distant future. Um, where, what does it look like for you, let's just say these next 10 years, Um because I think that's exciting, you know. It's not just about retirement or if that is even going to happen, I don't know. But it's also about where the project goes here. Where do you want to see yourself in the next 10 years? What are you up to? Yeah, so, um, yeah, as as I discussed with you the other day on a ride, um, yeah, I, we kind of see Rock Corbis Cycling as, as definitely at least, you know, a 10-year project or the next 10 years we're going to be um, dedicating a lot of our time and energy to it, um, you know, growing growing the project. Um, it's It's not finished um, yet, you know, I think you've seen a snippet of that. You know, we have two villas that are fully renovated at the moment, so we have um, we have a capacity of of sixteen people, so eight rooms. Um, twin makes it maximum sixteen capacity, but we have the potential to to add another another twelve rooms to the equation mm. with the big uh, manor house, which we're sitting in um, in the basement of of the big manor house at the moment. Um, so there's still a lot to be done here. We also have 35 hectares of land, you know, which we're hoping to... Um, By the way, the oil gave me a tin <laughs> of the, the local olive oil here. Well, produced on the property, grown on the property, not produced on the property. Yeah. Beautiful olive oil. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad to hear that you enjoyed it. That's yeah. usually the the feedback that we get it's really special oil because they're really old um, trees not not trees that um, that you find uh, so predominantly anymore so it's really unique oil and um, yeah we, we really it's a it's a big you know outing for us you know to go and pick our olives and then go out to a local press and get it done so yeah it's really cool but yeah the idea is to start at the moment a local farmer is um, is using our our lands at the moment to do canola and wheat you know he, he alternates every year but what we would like to do is start taking back um, you know field by field and first starting off with you know a um, a a garden a vegetable garden for our restaurant so to start creating that farm to table Mm. experience here because we would like to add a restaurant to the equation on the property 
um, and then hopefully also expanding that to like a market garden so to be able to grow fresh produce that can then be sold to the local community or maybe the cyclists in Girona mm. you know this kilometer zero concept you know so there's a lot to be done just on the property itself but then you know I'm also I'm quite a big dreamer you know so I, I have some some big ideas in mind um, you know just around you know the future of of cycling the sustainability of the sport and how I believe that um, to create a, a more sustainable future for example for pro cycling or for cycling in general is that we need to start connecting the dots you know or connecting the different parts of of the industry um, closer together because at the moment I feel like all the different parts of the industry um, really exist in in isolation and sometimes um, is exist in um, competition to one another you know so you have events that are looking for sponsorships but you also have pro teams that are looking for sponsorships and you know um, there's competition in in who who lands the deal you know so um, that's just one example and I, I believe that there is possibility for the sport to start working closer together so to bring you know the cycling tourism closer to the pro cycling closer to to the events to kind of have it all under one umbrella mm. you know so my big dream for Rocker is to have you know a big umbrella company that would own you know the cycling tourism the pro team the events or experiences the development side of it community you know bring it all together cool. um, so yeah it's quite a big a big ambition um, so yeah I, I think I'm going to be busy for the next 10 years um, at least and um, yeah the professional side of things, you know, I've won more season with SD Works, and then that's the end of my road cycling. Uh, ah, have you announced career. that, or are you announcing it right here on Life in the Peloton? Well, I've kind of hinted at it, okay. but yeah, I suppose yeah, we can say probably my official announcement. Yeah, you might be the first one to have it. So. Very cool. Well, <laughs> what a nice way to finish the podcast off. Awesome to talk to you. Thanks, Mitch. And I'm um, looking forward to hearing Talking Luft coming up. Cool. Well, there we have it. Like I said, it was a very enjoyable podcast for me. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I hope you got a bit of an image of where we were. I don't know if we explained it well enough because that Messiah is awesome. You've got to check it out on their website. You've got to go and visit it if you can do that. That's really, really cool. I really enjoyed being out there. Um, Lionel, what do you think of that episode? What did you really find out about Ashley? Well, I knew a bit about Ashley's uh, career and, and the fact that she came to professional cycling relatively late and she's got um, other interests and other areas of expertise. But it was just hearing her talk about that women's road race at the Olympics where it really took me inside the peloton uh, on a day when you know we were expecting to see a certain type of race and i what was really interesting was she was slightly down on uh, you know women's cycling having this um, you know global audience to showcase what's brilliant about the sport and then you know a real upset of a result and a, and a, the tactical handbook was really ripped up and i think that was what drew me into the race really and uh, had me on the edge of my seat for the for the whole morning as it was for us here over in Europe watching the uh, the road race from Japan it, we just didn't know what was going to happen I, I'd never seen a women's road race where the the breakaway had got that out of hand uh, well over 10 minutes and I just didn't know whether it was going to come back I thought surely the Dutch are going to get organized here even if they have to try and lean on some other teams but 
what Ashley explained so well was it's not just the fact that the teams are uneven numbers, um, but they're small teams. It was a kind of a perfect storm which led to um, you know a real kind of disorganized race, a really confusing race. And I completely get from a professional athlete's point of view, you know, that race comes around in this case um, five years since the last one. You know, it's a you know something that only comes around maybe two or three times in someone's career. So you, you don't want a real wild card of a race. But from a spectator's point of view, sitting watching on TV, I found it absolutely gripping, uh, entertaining racing. Yeah, it was confusing. We we were left wondering whether they um, even knew, um, you know, what the the picture was up front. Um, but that that's what made it a great watch. And uh, I don't think that, you know, it just has to... Women's racing to be a really good watch doesn't have to conform to the same um, norms as men's racing. Having said that, I do think that in a, a championship race like this, um, the uneven teams, you know, some teams having five, some only having one or two, um, it does make for some, you know, unpredictable uh, factors that perhaps uh, could be evened up. You know, a real small peloton, very difficult to get organised, but like I say, uh, gripping entertainment. Exactly. I mean, she really uncovered some stuff that was, in the end, when she said it, very obvious. The Dutch team stacked with, you know, four winners, opposed to having one worker there. You're thinking, of course, that makes sense. But quite often, to be selected in for these Olympic Games or World Championships, you've got to be a winner. You've got to be the best rider. But that doesn't necessarily make a very cohesive team. So it was quite an interesting insight, that. And Unfortunately, as she explained, that is on the world stage. For a lot of people who don't know cycling, that's the only image they get of it. And they're looking at it going, mm, I don't know what's going on here. This is a bit of a joke. I hope that's not the case um, because, you know, we know that's not true. You know, the women's cycling, female cycling has just gone so far now. It's just, it's amazing to race, What the amazing to watch, sorry, what the teams are doing and the, tele, the televised, you know, races that are happening now, it's great. I really love where it's gone. So I hope that hasn't damaged it. Um, it was a great episode. There was a lot more in there too. Like you said, there's a lot more that she talked about and she was a very, very interesting person to speak to. There's more coming because she did a Talking Luft with me. So next week there'll be a Talking Luft with her. I know I said there was going to be a Talking Luft this week, but we just had to squeeze that in before the Vuelta. Like I said at the start of the podcast, we're going to have a little break while the Grand Tour is on. It seems like these Grand Tours are rolling around so quick. But the Vuelta's on now, Vuelta España. Life in the Peloton is going to take a little siesta. We'll be back just after the Vuelta for another two i think we've got three or four episodes coming up before the end of the close of the season so some cracking episodes coming up if you haven't already seen life in the peloton did a collaboration with rafa we made some kit and that has gone live on the rafa website that went live last friday it's been up for a week now so get across there check that out Get some kit. You're crazy if you haven't got any kit. If I see you out riding and you're not in that kit, I'm going to be disappointed. So, guys, don't waste any more time. Get across there and get that kit. So, guys, thanks very much for tuning in. And until next time, cheers. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.